Hi, and welcome to another new episode of Magical Match, a place to hear about real people with real stories around the important topic of stem cell donation and transplants. In each episode, I'll be chatting with donors, recipients, those in supportive roles, and people who have been affected by either a personal experience or through another's inspirational story. It is my hope that by opening the conversation around stem cell donation, we can inspire more people to sign up to the Stem Cell Register, offering more hope to those in need. In this episode, I spoke with Ellie Moss, Donor Request Coordinator at DKMS. She works in follow-up donor patient contact. We talked about her role within DKMS, the donor process, the personal and emotional aspects of donation, and what actually happens when a donor finally gets to meet a recipient. This was such an interesting conversation. It was so informative and quite extraordinary. I really hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, Ellie, to Magical Match. Hello. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to work at DKMS. So my name is Ellie and currently I work in DKMS in the Donor Request Management Department, which sounds very fancy. (laughs) It's basically the part of the charity that arranges the donations for donors. And my role is the end of the experience, if you will. So you've got three departments in the donor request management team. We've Mm. got confirmatory typing or CT, and they reach out to donors to say, hi, you're a potential match. Let's do some testing. Are you up for it? Let's go through your medical history, answer any questions. Then we Mm. have the workup team. And that's when official request has been put in for an actual donation. And we work with our donors to arrange the donation, basically. So go for a medical assessment, donate, and then you go through to follow up and donor patient contact, which is me. Yay. Um, <laughs> and my role is to make sure that donors are OK following their donation, make sure they're kind of you know, recovering back to normal. And I also can give them information on their patient and kind of help connect them with them as well if they're interested um so that's my general kind of role how did you come to be at dkms so i used to work for auntie nolan as a cord collector so i used to work in king's college hospital and i used to work with mums who were delivering and yeah i would collect their placenta and basically get the blood from it and that blood can be used to kind of help patients who can't find a match If you're matching a patient and a donor, it tends to be a 10 out of 10 match. So the body doesn't reject the cells. So it kind of camouflages it and can kind of come in. While cord is a lot more immature because it's... New. Yeah, it's new. It's not really kind of taking lots of characteristics. So it doesn't have to be a 10 out of 10 match. It could be like a a lot more manual, if you will. And so that's what that's used for. So that's what I used to do. And I joined there because I did lots of first... I used to work at St. John's Ambulance and stuff. So I had a lot of first aid experience. I then went into that. And then I myself have a blood disorder as well. And it happened the same time I was working with blood cancer. It was a very bad coincidence. I've got a blood... So you were working at Antony Nolan at this particular point? Yeah, yeah. It was a really bad coincidence. Okay. Um, I have neutropenia autoimmune disease. That's basically my body destroys my neutrophil count. So I have no really any immune system. So it was just a really bad coincidence. (laughs) And because of that, I moved to the head office where I worked in CT, confirmatory typing. So I worked there for a good couple of years. And then I migrated over to DKMS. 
So DKMS at the time when I joined in the UK was only going for about five years and it was still quite a small. And because it was so small, they only needed like a certain coordinators and the coordinators would do everything. So they'll do the confirmatory typing, they'll do the actual donation and then they'll do the post donation side of things. Yes. But because there was more and more donations happening, they needed a role, a person for that role. Mm. And so that's when I came in. And so that's how I got at DKMS. Well, that's a lot to <laughs> unpack while I'm sitting here. <laughs> Because I didn't know that you had a blood disorder as well. So this is is what I find so moving when I speak to people who are working in this sort of, you know, charity field. Because I'm not saying everybody, but Mm. quite a few people either have a story of somebody they know or they feel motivated to join Mm. or to do something, or they are in a situation themselves, which is sort of... Mm force the situation almost to to get them to find out some more research and everything and then they've moved into this sort of area so Mm. you know with regard to your blood disorder is that something that can be helped or aided by stem cells or anything like that at the moment I don't need a stem cell donation I mean at the moment I'm okay Mm. but uh, I'm gonna touch all the wood but you know because I do have a blood disorder I am more prone to maybe having some form of blood cancer so that might be something down my path which I kind of hate because I kind of know all the bits and bobs about about, (laughs) like I really wish I didn't know Um, but that is that is a potential but you know everyone has the potential to kind of get yeah exactly I myself I've got a really good hematology team in King's College Hospital Um, and they take care of me really well and uh, they monitor me like every three months we do a blood test just to kind of make sure my neutrophil count is at an appropriate level Um, and if I have an infection or something I'm taken care of as well by my GP and hospitals near where I live and I also take GCSF as a medication so that's one of the medications that our donors actually take to kind of help produce more stem cells like a growth factor yeah it is yeah so when I speak to a lot of donors they we talk about the side effects that they've had and Mm. I'm not saying that I can experience what they have felt because everyone experiences everything very differently I can very much empathize a lot more with how they felt and especially there's a very unique feeling that you have when you have these growth hormone things where it feels like Mm. I want to describe it as a bit like you're a lava lamp you can feel things move around a bit okay and especially when you stand up you can feel energy going up your spine and things like that and everyone tried to describe it and I'm I'm like I understand I know exactly how you feel and how you felt I understand and they're like okay and I'm like yeah 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 and also I when I do work with patients obviously again I've been very fortunate not needing a stem cell donation but I can empathize with the um it's quite a traumatic thing to be diagnosed and having to go through all that kind of experience and I can empathize more with that and you know there's a common ground more than if someone if I was a Mm. healthy human being (laughs) and had no history of that it there's a bit more of a common ground to speak with and I think it's it is really important when you're going through these situations that when you do find somebody that is either going through the same thing as you or whatever but can really understand because it can Mm. feel very isolating I don't know how people feel with cancer but I do know how it feels to watch somebody yeah uh, you love going through it Mm. and it's hard but it but it helps when you can have that sort of empathy and you can have that sort of understanding Mm. I think very much so and my role in DKMS as well as I'm the mental health first aider there as well right and I'm there to support donors I've been very fortunate that most donors are they've got good support systems but I'm there to kind of help and that's something I'm hoping as a project to expand 
planned on this year about kind of helping donors who are in a very unique situation where they may not know the person. Um, I know a lot of donors feel responsible, but then we also have situations as well, which I think are absolutely lovely, where patients' families will actually reach out and wanting to talk to their donors and thank them. I've had a couple, I've had one recently where they've exchanged information and they've been, uh, while the, the patient was going through all the treatment, it, it, it wasn't going very well. Um, the wife was kind of explaining things to the, um, to the donor and being really open. And mm. sadly, the patient passed away, but the patient's wife and donor could exchange information. And I think that's such a lovely thing that's able to happen. And mm. again, very fortunate the donor actually works in healthcare. So it was yeah. kind of like she understood the kind of circumstance. So it's it's always really nice when I can help kind of bring people together. That's, yes. my, favorite, that's my favorite part of my job, for sure. Yes. So with regard to the process, how does it begin? Because obviously it's at the end of treatment, isn't it? Yeah. So if you're a donor out there, you officially come to me once you've actually donated your stem cells so the coordinator who's kind of managed the donation tends to give like a call just to say hope you're okay hope you've made it home okay if there's any issues getting home like um, train strikes or something we can kind of help facilitate that kind of stuff and then after that I tend to contact donors about two days a couple of days after the actual donation just to give them time just to settle in and get home and relax and everything so obviously there's two different methods of donation we've got the peripheral blood stem cell collection method and then we've got the bone marrow donation with bone marrow I tend to call maybe the day after they get home from hospital just because they've obviously it's a bit more invasive and just to make sure they're recovering okay they're comfortable make sure they've got all the right medication that kind of stuff and I generally what we do first is have a bit of a chat about the donation experience how everything was they feel cared for they had any feedback on how we can improve any services that we've provided if they need any extra medical care I'm not a doctor in any shape or form but I can work with the doctors that we work with the collection centers or the DKMS medical officer and with bone marrow I tend to follow up the week after as well just to make sure um, they're recovering okay because they um, are given some medication relatively stronger medication than paracetamol just to kind of Mm. help with their recovery Mm. and I'm well aware that some people go cold turkey (laughs) they're like I feel fine and then they stop taking the medication or they run out and then they're like oh no I feel uncomfortable I mean that's very fortunate that not a lot of donors feel that way but I just want to make sure that they're okay and they're going back to work okay and if they need any extra time off so that's the first kind of thing with bone marrow with the peripheral blood stem cell collection method I tend to call like I said about two three days after the donation go over the you know the same thing kind of make sure that they had an okay time there was any issues with you know finding a vein in the arm things like that that's obviously some big issues is um you know if you have troublesome veins I know that some people and also you're sitting still for such a long period of time and you're quite tense I think sometimes that can be quite uncomfortable so just making sure they're okay Mm. and then after I've kind of gone over the donation their health I can share uh, some very limited information on their patients so I can tell them the gender the rough age group Mm -hmm. and where the transplants actually taking place okay I tend to share a little bit about what the patient tends to go through as well and kind of what happens on their side of things just because it's not really discussed that much about previously so just to give a bit of a overview of what tends to happen at that kind of phase yeah and then 
depending on the country. So each country has their own guidelines and rules. No country is alike, unfortunately. So uh, we have a nice big spreadsheet with every kind of country with all their different guidelines and stuff. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and so, yeah, so it, it depends on like when we can, you know, request updates from the patient's team, how reliable yeah. they are giving updates, if they can have um, anonymous correspondence. So initially we have anonymous correspondence with the patients and donors if they want to. Some countries mm. allow that, some countries don't. Some countries are really strict and only allow one letter while some don't have a kind of limit. And then some countries allow, you know, direct contact as well. So it's a bit of that. I go over our follow-up programme. So it makes it sound way more fancy than it is. So we reach out to our donors a month after they're donated with a very basic health questionnaire and a blood test form for their GP to do as well. And that is with some basic blood tests and it's just to make sure that everything is back to normal it's not compulsory the main thing is that the donors feel okay but if they want to make sure that everything's all right or if they felt not quite right yet it's there to kind of make mm. sure everything's okay and then after that I'm in touch with the donors for 10 years <laughs> a yearly on the day 10 years of, yeah 10 years so I'm part of the donors lives for a lot longer than anybody else is yeah that is amazing. That's something that's never, ever occurred to me, that it might be... It's not compulsory. The follow-up programme is very much, it's keep in touch with our donors just to, you know, we don't want to kind of them to donate and then for us to ignore them because that's, you know, very rude. Um, but also <laughs> it's part of our kind of guidelines from the WMDA, which is our governing body. But that's that's amazing. Yeah, that didn't occur to me. I, I could understand mm. maybe staying in touch for a, a year or two, but I, mm. I didn't realise that, you know, your relationship, your connection with, with somebody who's donating stem mm. cells is, is going to go on for a decade. We've just started getting to the tip because GKMS UK just turned 10. Yeah. We're now getting that first kind of batch of donors that donated 10 years ago, which is quite, it looks like, oh. Yeah. End of an era, end of an era a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're signing up to the stem cell register, can you donate more than once? Yes, you can. So because you are a volunteer, we do have guidelines um, because we don't mm. want to take advantage of our donors at all. They're doing this out of their own kindness and you know, everything. We don't want to take advantage. So the guidelines that we have is that you can donate via the preferable blood stem cell collection method twice, okay. the bone marrow method twice, and there is another type of donation called a lymphocyte donation. So that is after the patient has received their transplant. Mm. Sometimes they might need an extra boost. This is me really dumbing it down. Um, <laughs> the um, patient might need an extra boost of cells to kind of help maybe with an infection. If maybe there is a little bit of reoccurrence of any like you know cancerous cells or any something like that. And rather than them having to go through that chemotherapy phase again, it's basically a bit of a blood transfusion. So I. It's a similar method to donating as the PBSC method. So needle in one arm, blood comes out, goes back into the other arm and you collect the cells. Yes. You don't have the injections prior though, because it's a different type of cell that we're collecting. We're collecting the lymphocyte cells and okay. we tend to, and that tends to be a one day donation. Not every patient needs it. We roughly say maybe about 15% of patients might need a bit of it, you know, additional help. And and does that affect the donor at all? Does it affect having your lymphocytes donated and, uh, well, you know, taken? It doesn't... No, because it has very little 
effect it's a bit like when people donate plasma and things it's very similar to kind of okay. that kind of thing it's very little kind of side effects you might feel maybe a bit fatigued after mm. it's really it the main side effects that people have when they're donating is from the injections yeah because you're not having those injections you know tend to feel as as rough <laughs> can you can you explain what could be expected if you were having gcsf so with gcsf it depends on your your weight the amount that you're given it's kind of individually prescribed to you so that it's perfect for what your body can produce right we give a course of injections you have it four days leading up to the donation so let's say you're donating on a a monday you have these injections on thursday friday saturday sunday you tend to have them multiple times a day you tend to have about i think it varies but it can be up to about four injections a day and Mm -hmm. they are you can have there's different ways of having them administered so we can arrange a nurse to come out and see you so we can get a nurse to come out to your home or your work, whatever's more convenient to you. Mm. And they give it to you as a one batch. Or we can train you at your medical assessment before your donation to um, how to self-inject. So it's a lot more to your own schedule. So things are a lot more you know, flexible if you don't, can't, don't have a lot of time. That's sometimes a lot more preferable as well. Just obviously, it's a skill also to learn. I can just imagine if it was me, I'd probably need somebody to arrive and say, no, you're having it now because I'll, mm. I'll put something in the diary and then go, oh. We also do a a combo, if you will, where we have a nurse come the first time and administer or kind of be there to help show how to administer it properly, Mm. make sure they feel comfortable. They might come back in the second day, kind of maybe watch them do it again, make sure they're okay. And the next two times they do it themselves. We also have uh, friends and family that get trained to do it so that, you know, your partner can do it. And also uh, we had a donor recently who went to their local GP and local hospital to do it. So there's multitudes of things. Okay. Um, side effects wise, because it's making your body produce extra stem cells and making your body work harder, you tend to feel quite achy, mm. um, especially in the bigger bones. So kind of your pelvis, your thigh bones, your sternum, yeah. the bigger bone areas. Yeah. And it can be achy. It, and some people, have, it really varies how people react. Mm. And you never really know until you have the injection so some people have it very minor so it's just slight aching some people don't even need to take any paracetamol or anything they don't feel the need for it some people get headaches or might feel really fatigued I know that some it sometimes can affect your sleep sometimes as well just because I think you're quite uncomfortable when you're sleeping Mm. Um, but it's kind of more just like having the flu yeah it's kind of what a lot of people say it feels a bit like yeah. medication wise we recommend just taking paracetamol during that time not aspirin or ibuprofen unless the doctors say so mm. and that's just because you know let's be on the safer side just because aspirin especially is a blood thinner yeah it does mm. the opposite of what we all what you what we need yeah. and let's just say we're not medics and please follow doctor's advice yeah thank we you also, <laughs> we also have an on-call phone so if any donor was having you know any questions or any issues yeah. or you know any medical feelings that they had and they were like is this normal we're there to kind of support them 24 7 that's what we're there for so we have that kind of support and if there is anything medical we can link in with the collection centers and the doctors there as well are there any situations where you come into contact with people and they decide they don't they don't want to go ahead how do you manage that and what what sort of reasons do they give it really varies. I had a donor recently who was the father of a, a little girl who sadly passed away from blood cancer. And when his daughter was kind of getting ready for a stem cell donation, he was really frustrated with, you know, oh, we have five donors that are potential matches. Actually, now we only have one, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of situation. And he was really angry 
But then he said it was interesting then coming around the other way and then being a match and going, I have a holiday booked that I've saved for like a year or I have weddings that I've committed to and things. And Mm. it makes him realise that, you know, as much as obviously someone on the other side is really struggling, things do get in the way. So people, it's a variety of issues. Some people, it's just not the right time for them or they just don't feel like it's something they can commit to. Mm. They might have joined the register because their friends were and so they might have felt a bit of a peer pressure to do it if especially if it's an event or something Mm. some people you know they're just not in the right headspace just it's a a lot of an emotional kind of not emotional toll but there is a lot of emotions that come with it just because you are helping somebody in a very difficult situation yeah and it can be quite stressful especially with going to the Mm. appointments you have to work around your work family life some people it literally can be family life like taking time off when I say taking time off we do support donors if they need to take time off work and things but Mm. um I mean kind of like childcare situations like that everyone's life it can be really you know difficult Mm. um some people are just not medically eligible at the moment so if they're going through investigations medical investigations yeah then they they can't do that yeah if they're pregnant can't donate if you're pregnant um or if you're Mm. breastfeeding as well um we do have situations where if it's six months postpartum and you are breastfeeding we have had it where mothers stop breastfeeding for a couple of days while they're taking the injections and the donation days okay they're very rare and we would very much have to discuss it with the medical officer and doctors and stuff but that can happen yeah so it's not always as straightforward as you think I think if I was called you'd you'd imagine you'd just say yeah yeah where do where do I need to be what time Mm. and off you go but there are reasons there are valid reasons why people can't do it yeah exactly and we very much support our donors with anything they choose and we are advocates for the donors to make sure they're, mm. in, they're making the best decision for themselves and we're yeah. not peer pressuring them into something that isn't right for them. That is yeah. part of our job is to make sure that we're not putting anyone in a situation where they can't say no. That is for sure yeah. one of the things that we're trained to look out for as well. Yeah. I'm very much, if you can get on the register, get on the register. And I'm very much a sort of can do, do it. Oh, completely. Join the register if you'd like to. But at the same time, if you feel like actually you're doing it because you think you should and you don't actually want to do it. Yeah, it's not it's not the right reason, is it? Yeah. yeah. We also have some donors who, um, because we're an aligned registry in the UK, we have, I think, four registries in the UK. We're quite, okay. quite, there's quite a lot. There's DKMS, there's Anti-Nolan, there's BBMR and... ACLT. Thank you. I was going to say they're going to really tell me off if I can't remember the name. Um, <laughs> and, and so because we have so many, a lot of donors join each register. Does everybody goes into one registry? Yes, they do, which means they're on the register four times. Um, so when you get a donor, a patient who's like, oh, I've got four matches. Yes, actually, it's just one person. It's one person. So that, to be cautious on that, if you feel like you're on multiple registers, obviously pick DKMS. But... Um, <laughs> You know, make sure that you're only on one register just because it will save a bit of time in the future. Research <laughs> and, and slightly awkward conversations perhaps with uh, with, with people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when it comes to people meeting, mm-hmm. how much involvement do you have in the actual meeting? If somebody said, you know, they've gone in touch with you, they wanted to get in touch with their recipient and their recipient mm-hmm. was doing well, what happens next so there's lots of consent forms (laughs) and that's to make sure that both sides are happy so we have consent forms where we would send to our donors and in there would be you know what information are you happy to share like um your name telephone number 
maybe postcode, things like that, whatever you feel comfortable sharing, mm. like contact details mainly. And there is also a bit about when you do exchange information, it's something I can't control anymore. Yeah. Before you exchange, I am very much in control of your communication with yeah. the patient and the transplant centre. After that, you're very much an adult on your own. <laughs> that mm. makes sense yeah. with, another, with another adult. Yeah. And um, so that is something to kind of be aware of. That's something that we kind of make sure that our donors are aware of as well. And do you, in, that, in the middle of that process, do you check with regard to sort of, you know, mental health? health and emotional health and things like that do, do they have support from a psychologist or anything like that while they're going through that process we don't know we did have a situation where I think the patient and donor had exchanged information mm. and the patient was going through a lot of treatment and there was a lot of side effects related to their donation I think they had quite bad GVHD right um graft versus host disease for those that don't know what gvhd is where your yeah. body kind of goes what the hell is that what's and, happening yeah and there's certain like, levels of it and i don't think he kind of quite understood the long-term side effects of having a stem cell donation and i think he was a little upset when he was talking to them and the patient actually mentioned it to their team that the donor seemed a bit shocked and they reached out to me directly and said look we've had this conversation with the patient just maybe do a courtesy call to the donor and so I called the donor and we talked through anything and actually they were absolutely fine it was just they were maybe not completely aware of like what it looks like I think some people think that because you've had a stem cell donation you're going to get better mm. but getting better looks different for everybody mm. it really varies from levels and weeks we talked about it like I said I'm there to kind of support donors and I can kind of forward them on to anyone if I feel like they needed it or I can give mm. them resources as well we also have something called the donor club where we invite all our donors to join if they would like to for, for actual donors if that makes sense so for yeah, donors yeah, that yeah. actually donated yes um and at the moment is we have a facebook page and it's a community where donors you know we invite them once we've I've spoken to them and it's such a lovely community already that it's only been going for about um nine ten months mm. they exchange stories um there's a lot of donors who have no idea what to write to patients and so mm. they give each other tips on there which is really nice and I know that speaking to these donors a lot of them are like I would like I'm happy to help another donor who's going through that emotional time and they have no one else to speak to who's gone through exactly the same thing they've gone yeah. through so we have that community there to support others if they want to as well so we don't necessarily say do you feel like you're medically and mentally in a great position we kind of leave it on to them to kind of make that yeah. decision um, yeah. they can decline to exchange information if they don't feel it's the right time so they can either decline mm. they can postpone or they can accept it's very much up to them there is no pressure mm. on either side really yeah I think some of the some of the donors that I've spoken to have talked about once they've been you know called that they mm. do feel this immense uh responsibility to mm. their patient yeah. and the fact is it's the patient needs your stem cells and it's it's a huge thing to do but Mm. coupled with the fact that you can't be responsible you know but but it doesn't change how somebody feels about it does it so very much so and and we do get situations where a patient might pass away and their donor goes is it my fault yeah and yeah. that's, that's it's a horrible I mean it's a horrible kind of feeling to have anyway mm. to be clear it's no donor's fault no. one of the biggest things if without the stem cell donation they wouldn't have got to the point where they're at mm. and if anything you've given them and their family want maybe more time together, but also 
hope, which is an amazing thing to have when you're in a situation where you feel really bleak and to yeah. know that someone out there who's a really random stranger willing to help someone. And help in that way, knowing that. Yeah. And it, to say that it's a sort of life and death situation, you know, mm. I'm saying it lightheartedly, mm. it is a life and death situation that you, you can find yourselves in in, in in these circumstances. And mm. like you say, to have somebody that you don't know just say, yeah, I'm willing to do that. I can, I can do that. You can have my stem cells. The impact on the family is... So positive. <laughs> it's so amazing. It is. And I try to I do try to explain that to donors as well. Um, especially when we did the when we have the chat about once they first donated, we chat about there some donors ask about the likelihood of survival and things like that. And it's really difficult to to answer because, you know, I could be walking across the road and a bus hits me. Yeah. It it says that it's not just down to the stem cells, is it? It's down yeah. to how the body responds and, and a whole load of other factors um, yeah. that come into play. It's complicated, isn't it? It is. I'll go back to the question you asked. So <laughs> you do your consent form. Then depending on the country, what tends to happen is so once I have the donor's consent, I will then reach out to the patient's team. The patient's team would go, rightio. And they have their own consent form or I give them a consent form. They reach out to the patient. Similar thing is done on their side. And then a bit more formal, but we exchange the information. We literally swap it. (laughs) And I say, you know, here's the information. You're now free to contact them. Please let me know how it goes. And we've had some really lovely stories. We've had one donor met his patient on holiday. They met in Greece or something. Lovely. Yeah, there's a nice picture of them, like both underwater snorkeling, and they're like, "That's adorable." Um, we had another situation. My this is my my favorite stories. We had a donor and patient who actually knew each other in real life. Who actually knew each other? Okay, no one talks about this. Is that's an extraordinarily rare thing to happen? Oh um, my goodness! They both because obviously the UK is uh, we have obviously got some little islands as well. Mm. They both come from a little island near Spain that's part of the UK territory. I can't remember the name of the country now. Gibraltar. That's the one. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and they, they come to the UK for treatment. And the donor was, I hope he doesn't mind me talking about him. He's part of our comms bit, so we have talked about him in the past. Okay. So this donor, he is a priest, and he was helping patients go through cancer treatment, especially from Gibraltar in the UK. Yeah. And so the patients, there was quite a few of them over in the UK, and he was there kind of supporting them, you know, with God and kind of emotionally as well. Yeah. And he was also donating at the same time, (laughs) and he donated his stem cells to a patient that he was emotionally supporting and they live on the same island and they knew each other oh my goodness when they told me I was I just cried I think about it now I'll cry (laughs) oh but how amazing how amazing and did they 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 obviously they would have kept things anonymous for two years and been yeah yeah they did yeah all the way through that and then to be able to look at each other in the eye and go oh my goodness yeah, I remember them replying to me and it took a couple of days for them to reply to me and they're like, I'm so sorry for the reply. I know this person. Oh my god. And then they explained their story and I was like, Oh my gosh. Wow. Oh wow. Yeah. That was that's my favorite was my favorite ones. I'm sorry to any other donor patient pairs that I've said <laughs> out there and you might be listening. But, but you gotta you gotta you gotta top that. You gotta top that. <laughs> That was one of the questions I was going to say. Have there been any particular funny or emotional stories that have stayed with you and made an impact in your own life? 
So that's one of them, definitely for sure. I don't often speak to patients on my side of things, but occasionally a patient will be directed to me to kind of help with the exchange of information. Mm. And whenever I speak to any of those patients, there's about three or four that I can think of. They always stay with me because it tends to have quite, I tend to have quite a lot of communication with them and be phone or you know via email and um, one of them was Ivor who exchanged his information with his donor recently we did a 10-year anniversary thing with them um, oh, right. and then you. we also there's another patient and donor meeting in end of May and uh, I've been in contact with the patient there quite a bit and they're the, all the ways the ones that make me feel so mm. much more involved and mm. emotional and stick with me so yeah yeah those ones are the particularly the ones that um and you're building those you build those relationships don't you with what starts out as a stranger and then you're you know you can't help I suppose but get to know them to a degree yeah and it's yeah because I always you know it's but I always ask like how are you feeling how's your treatment going kind of thing maybe I'm overstepping my boundaries but we always have a bit of a chat about it as well just because it's talk about how they're feeling and things especially with them exchanging information we want to make sure that the patient is in a good space we don't want to kind of peer pressure them into something they don't feel comfortable doing yeah we have to talk about the fact that you know a stem cell transplant is ultimately like the last opportunity Mm. outside of you know maybe trials further down the line or whatever but that a patient has to have a second chance at life in you know some of those circumstances unfortunately as you say people Mm. do die when it comes to your role within that are you obliged to tell the donor promptly do you tell them sort of immediately how do you go about that it depends on the time of year. So if it was near Christmas, I mm. might wait until after Christmas. Yeah. If it was near their birthday, that's part of our policy is to not to kind of do it near those kind of times. Yeah. We have just had some feedback about Ramadan as well and things like that. So that needs to be added to the calendar as well, those kind yeah. of things. Yeah. So main like big holidays, try to wait. It depends on the situation, but normally what we would do is we send out a letter informing the donor and if they have asked for updates that includes the good and the bad so if they wanted updates I would inform them and we tend Mm. to inform them via post so that they're you know if we send an email or call they could be anywhere but if you open post you tend to be at home yeah in a safe space where you can read the letter and And in there yeah and in there we kind of say if you need support or you want to talk or anything like that there's my number my email Mm. so we've got those kind of things and we're currently in the process of developing a I don't want to say grieving handbook but that's basically what it will be on support maybe if they wanted to do some fundraising in the honor of their patient that might have passed away or volunteer or you know different ways of kind of doing things it's not just donating but there are other ways you can help yeah and so that's some of the stuff that we're working towards at the moment and that's some of the feedback we did a focus group with our donors we've got one this summer as well I'm trying to do one yearly but we can get feedback from donors that have been through the experience had that kind of stuff and how we can improve the process Mm. so that was part of what they gave feedback on on 
kind of just so that we could acknowledge that they might be going through a difficult time and may not want to reach out so they're giving them that kind of information yeah and do you find that donors who've donated and and they've had this sort of sad outcome with their recipient do you find that they get in contact with you or do they respond to your letter I suppose or or do you find it just sort of the standard is that they're supported by their family or it, it really varies it really varies some donors reach out and would like to maybe discuss it some people would like to you know we're limited with what information we can share yeah so and that's kind of explained but a lot of it is like what are the circumstances that could have happened mm-hmm. that is some of the times that the kind of situations that we talk about and just generally just talking about how they're feeling and things that does happen sometimes the donor might just pop me an email just to say I've received this news I'm quite sad but I hope that I helped you know a little bit and some people just don't reply, and that's absolutely fine as well. There is yeah. no right or wrong way of doing anything, and any feedback that is given or anything on how we deliver the process and things like that, you know, we take and we want to improve our processes as much as processes makes it sound really official, um, but like making sure that our donors feel supported. Mm but are well informed of what's happened as well because yeah. that's important. Yeah. I think it's such an extraordinary job that you're doing actually because you're coping with supporting people in, in quite extraordinary circumstances and you you know like you say you kind of had to be very very compassionate to be able to deal with that yourself when mm. you know when you don't always hear from a donor at the end of the situation that that they find mm. themselves in or whatever. And presumably you have support and and DKMSS yeah. staff have support for these sorts of stories. Stories. Technically, I'm the support. <laughs> You're the support. Do you have anybody supporting you? Yeah, um, our HR team is really good. And we also have like one of those kind of external, uh, like a therapist that you can go to for a couple of sessions. I have also, personally, I've had lots of mental health things. I'm very adapt to kind of coping mm. and I know my limits. Yeah. I don't think I would do this job if I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. That is yeah. one of the things that I am aware of and I know when I've reached my limit. And I'm very good at, um, it's actually these kind of situations isn't the hard bits, it's when someone calls you up and explains things. Mm. So I had a patient who called in and he was explaining his diagnosis, have you got diagnosed? I think he thought DKMS was a, like a patient transplant team. Yeah. Um, and that's why I had to explain the situation, but I gave him resources and everything. Mm. But that got to me more than just because of the pain that he was going through at the moment. Yeah. And him reaching out to me, you know that they would have been quite desperate to be in that situation. Yeah. And you feel that response, well, do you feel that sense of responsibility, I suppose, in in your job? Very much so. I, I want to make sure that everyone leaves from chatting with me, yeah. feeling at least that they've got a little bit of an answer or maybe if not an answer, somewhere to go to kind of get an answer. Yeah. And I mean, my role here is to help people. And when you're in that situation, I can't help them. Yeah. And I dislike that greatly. <laughs> yeah, but hopefully, you know, you can point them in the right direction. As you say, you can give them resources. Exactly. And that's the best I can do in that kind of situation. Yeah. And when those calls do happen, you know, we have a bit of a timeout. We have a cup of tea. We have a bit of a debrief with maybe a, a workmate or a, yeah. my manager or something and just 
explain the situation. Um, I also have therapy guinea pigs. <laughs> I have guinea pigs where I cuddle as well if I'm feeling sad. I'm, I'm prepped. I'm ready. I love the fact that you're so honest. And if there's anybody else listening in similar situations or doing similar work roles, I think it's such a, an important thing to do for self-care is to have what you need while you're caring yeah. for others because you, you need to be you need to be doing that. Yeah, you can't give good support or be good at your job without having that support system that you need. With my role, you know, there is sadness, but there is so much good and so much happiness that it outweighs it. So much joy. I've really been enjoying talking to you and listening to everything everything that you're saying. But it's very, very clear to me that you're a compassionate, warm-hearted individual. And I think... Well, I think I think it gives people hope knowing that there's somebody like you at the end of the phone. Oh, I hope so. I hope yeah. so. And if it helps, all the team are like that where I work. Like all of us, when we're hired for the role, obviously you're tested, but you are you have like a, you know, can you do the job, that kind of thing. But do you do some sort of role-playing interviews about whether... there is a there is a little bit of a role play kind of phone chat that you do, like when Ooh. you talk to a donor in a difficult situation and how you would answer that kind of situation on the spot. Wow. But it's also your personality, and there's definitely a type of personality that gets hired in the donor request management team. So it's interesting being in this kind of work culture because it's a, a definitely certain type of person that is is hired. Would you say they are positive and hopeful? I'd like to think so. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I get, I, I get the feeling that the thing is people in, in these sort of circumstances are looking for support. They're looking for direction. They're looking for, you know, to know that everything's going to be okay, even mm. when it isn't. It's, I, I just think it's brilliant what you do. Absolutely fantastic. You've explained some of the highlights, but what's the best thing? What what motivates you in the morning when you when you get up in the morning and you're going into work? What's the thing that sets you on your way? It's actually talking to the donors, especially after their donation. That and then exchanging the information and kind of helping that. But speaking to donors once they've donated and telling them information on their patient. And I mean, everyone, again, reacts very differently. Some people are like, that's interesting. Okay. Some people are like, <gasps> yeah, and they want to know more. And that for me, it's beautiful. And I'm like, oh, my dopamine is really high at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy. But that's my favorite part is speaking to donors, making sure they're okay. And, you know, being like, Phew, you're good, fabulous. But also just having that communication with them and speaking to them and answering any questions they might have. And because it's been very stressful leading up to everything as well with the donation, everything's quite strict on kind of, oh, we need to do a blood test. We need to do this. We need to do this and this. Yeah. And when you come to buy a side of things, it's very much like you've done it. Congratulations. You did it. <laughs> and kind of yeah. what we can do to help you go forward. We do obviously send, you know, follow up questionnaires once they've donated but um it's not compulsory to be clear <laughs> nothing's compulsory once you've donated and so then it's just talking to them as a human on human and just and that's my favorite part of my job yeah. for sure it's been wonderful talking to you uh, today <laughs> and i really hope that people who are listening to this conversation can um, really think about or give some thought to becoming a stem cell donor mm -hmm. because of the hope that is there yeah and that is the main thing that happens even you know there are some horrible circumstances that happen but the main thing is that you give the patient hope and I think some people forget that patients to get to the point of a stem cell donation they have to go through so much just to get to that point 
And that I do try to explain when I speak to donors, like you have done so much already and you don't know what you've, you know, you've given the patient and their family during that time. And so I hope that if anyone does join, they think of that kind of side of things that you're given a little, a wee bit of hope. It's very cheesy, but a wee bit of hope is always really nice, I think, especially in a situation where there isn't any, for sure. Wonderful. So if you're listening... You know what you need to do. Um, <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> please give some thought to signing up to the stem cell register because you could really make a difference to um, mm. to somebody waiting and you could be somebody's magical match. Um, so thank you so much, Ellie, for your time this thank, morning. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And to our audience, thank you very much for listening. That brings this episode to a close. I'm really grateful to my guest, Ellie Moss, today for explaining the whole situation around donors and recipients and what it means to become a stem cell donor and how it impacts on the lives of those waiting for a stem cell transplant. I really hope that you found today's conversation both interesting and inspiring. And as a sparking new podcast, we are looking for guests to share their inspirational stories. And if you have one, we'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on Twitter at Magical Match Pod and do get in touch if you'd like to join me to share your stem cell story. If you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, do like and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have time, write us a review. We'll be back with a new episode very soon. And in the meantime, please do consider signing up to the Stem Cell Register because you could be someone's magical match. Thank you for listening. Magical Match Podcast is an OB Hive production, originally inspired by a conversation with Andy Mitchell and other like-minded individuals. Magical Match Podcast is hosted and produced by Ginny Walker with audio production by James Walker and music by Cobalt Ocean. <laughs>